the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, The Great God Debate. A three-hour exchange of views between Christopher Hitchens and Dr. Mark Roberts. Christopher Hitchens, a graduate of Oxford, of course, longtime journalist, Vanity Fair columnist, author of many books and collections of essay, including a biography of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, author of America, and most recently, God is Not Great, last week, the number one selling nonfiction book in America. Dr. Roberts, frequent guest on this program, is a graduate of Harvard College and also received his Ph.D. from Harvard. He is a pastor, a professor, a blogger, and the author of six books. His latest is available this week, in fact, Can We Trust the Gospels? Gentlemen, welcome to you both. Christopher, good to have you back on. Very nice to have you back. And uh, Mark, good to have you back as well. Thank you, and uh, Christopher, it's nice to meet you electronically. Thank you for saying so. I, um, I set up this uh, debate with the help of my Internet friends by suggesting I would be offering propositions to you both and then having you comment on each of them as we go forward and then cross-comment. In the course of 15 segments, I hope to get through at least a dozen of these. Many are drawn from Christopher Hitchens' new book. Some are drawn from my having read Mark's uh, manuscript, although that's not uh, available yet to Christopher, so I'm going to minimize that a little bit. I want to begin, though, by asking... Uh, a question of Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts that comes from Christopher's brother Peter in the Daily Telegraph this week, uh, where he writes, where is Christopher's certain knowledge of what is right and wrong supposed to have come from? Christopher Hitchens, how do you respond to your brother? Well, it's the most commonly asked uh, question of, of unbelievers, or perhaps I should say atheists. Um, and I regard it, though you put it very politely, as a slightly insulting one. The suggestion that you make is that if I don't... Uh, respect a celestial dictatorship uh, that's unalterable, um, nothing is going to prevent me from lying, cheating, raping, thieving, and so on. Well, I can't exactly tell you why I don't do those things or why I enjoy, say, going to give blood, which I do. After all, I, I don't really lose a pint, but somebody gains one. And I have a rare blood group, and I might need some blood one day myself. So it seems an all-around very satisfying transaction. In a sense, do I need to say much more than that? Uh, Dr. Roberts, does he? Well, on one hand, no. Uh, I think that uh, there are certainly moral good people who believe all kinds of things, including atheism. In fact, uh, I I have sometimes said that I I sometimes believe Christians... uh, uh, kind of rely on God and need God here because they actually are not as good people as folk who are not believers, and, and somehow we need a, a little extra help. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's the problem is not that there aren't atheists and others who are moral and live morally. I think the problem would come if somebody who, who uh, disagreed on a matter of ethics and said, well, I understand that you, Christopher, believe I, I shouldn't uh, you know, shoot this innocent person, but in my view, I think I should shoot this innocent person. I'm not sure how, and I'd be interested, how would you say to that person at that point, no, you shouldn't, and here's why you shouldn't? Well, I think I would probably be capable of giving some good reasons. Um, 
I think, well, one thing, it would be an outrage to their conscience. Let's not consider the interests of the other person for a moment. Uh, and after all, some people do need to be shot, but you, you stipulated innocence. <laughs> um, well, it would be an outrage to your conscience if for some reason we do, we are aware of doing ill or doing good. Um, the test I apply in my book, the fairly good pragmatic American test is, what do you do when no one's looking? The fact is someone is looking. You, you have an internal conversation with yourself where you don't want to look or feel bad. Um, I don't think this comes from God. I think it comes as part of our evolution. Darwin points out, and others have noticed since, that there are animals who behave ethically to one another. Um, they have solidarity. They have family groups. They, have, they, they, they seem able to feel sympathy. They certainly uh, uh, come to each other's aid, in the case of some of the higher mammals. Um, I think, I think our morality evolved, and I don't believe that my Jewish ancestors thought that um, perjury and murder and theft were okay until they got to Mount Sinai and were told no dice. But uh, there's another insulting, if I, if I may say this, implication to the question, which is that those who do subscribe to the idea of, of an all-seeing permanent surveillance from a celestial dictatorship are therefore going to behave well. Now, there's absolutely no evidence for that proposition at all. And some of the things that are enjoined by the Ten Commandments, such as not envying other people's property, which in my view is a great spur to innovation, as well as a thought it's impossible not to have, actually don't lead to moral uh, preachments, nor, does, nor do commandments to mutilate the genitals seem to me to be moral preachments, nor does the idea of terrifying children with stories of hell appear to me to be moral. There's a great deal of wickedness that's attributable purely to religious belief. Morally normal people wouldn't do these things if they didn't think God was desiring them to do so. Mark so I return the question in that form. So, so then, for you, uh, our morality is a, is something that has come by way of uh, e evolutionary process. It, it, did I get that correctly? Yes, it's it's, it's necessary for human society to evolve. Yeah. That there be certain, uh, and it's found in all in all societies, wh whichever god they worship, or whichever cult they practice, that uh, courage is respected, cowardice is not, murder is forbidden, theft is very much frowned upon. There are different sexual mores. Not very, not very, very widely different. Um, the incest taboo seems to be very common. So does the one on cannibalism. I mean, the, the societies that, that don't follow those teachings, or rather, or those, or rather follow uh, sort of teaching. I mean, societies that violate those laws tend to die out of horrible diseases or of inbreeding. But I, I would pose the question to you both: child exposure, uh, common in the ancient world, still common in some societies, practiced widely in China today is not considered immoral in those societies, but does it offend your conscience, Christopher, given that you're concerned about, you've referenced a couple of uh, cruelties to children? Yes, it does, and I have to say it rather startles me to think of a society where that wouldn't be the case. Well, I, I, I agree with you on that. I think my point would be uh, that you have uh, perhaps explained why we are moral, namely that it comes from evolution. I don't know that you've provided an adequate explanation for why we should act morally if indeed we don't agree on what morality is. The case of infant exposure would be well, a good one. But my point would be further. Uh, it's an interesting example because in my church, and you know, mostly I'm a pastor, in my church we're very involved with a group in China of Christian people who are there quite precisely to save uh, young children, usually girls, who have been left exposed and, and to die. And in this case, it isn't just a humanist impulse or conscience, but it's a very specific response to the view that they are, are precious in the eyes of God and that we are called to reach out to those who are lowly. 
So at least in some cases, the ones that I'm most familiar with, uh, we have a, a rationale for being moral and examples of people being moral quite specifically because of their, uh, in this case, Christian conviction. Very well. Um, and I, I wish great luck to your friends, and there are many other Christians I know who do marvelous work in North Korea, for example, with the people who are trying to escape from a prison slave state there, and also for keeping the issue of Darfur in front of the public. I think the evangelical movement deserves a great deal of credit. But here's my challenge, um, which you don't have to answer now, but let's say I'd love an answer by the end of our discussion. You have to, you have to name a moral action taken or a moral statement uttered by a person of faith that could not be taken or uttered by a, a non-believer. I haven't yet found anyone who can answer me that. There's a perfectly good secular reason for opposing, especially the exposure of girl. It's often worse than exposure, by the way, in China. I mean, the burial alive or the stifling of girl babies, I mean, it, it will in the end mean there aren't enough women. Uh, there's every reason why that the Chinese are going to discover it. I mean, alarming. I wrote this in Vanity Fair once. Um, a, a, an officially communist society will very soon have no word for brother or sister, hmm. let alone uncle or aunt. It, it, and that, that word, that, as they say, will not stand. But that it has is changed. They, they'll discover that they've, they've ruined their, their own demography. But is as it, well as to having done in the meantime things that are revoltingly cruel. But when you when you talk about innocent children, remember it is it is surely the scripture that tells us that children are born in original sin and are imps of Satan. A minute to the break. I uh, never read that Imps of Satan part in my Bible before, but maybe I missed it. Now, my, my point would be that, uh, uh, Christopher, you would uh, explain the fact of, of human conscience in, in light of evolution. That may well be true. Uh, I would actually say something I know you don't believe, but you and I can differ on all kinds of things, that, that your innate morality is, in fact, uh, quite a, a, a real remnant of your having been created by a moral God. And that one of the reasons that your arguments work, uh, appeal to common conscience and stuff like that, is that we have, in fact, embedded within us something more than the accident of evolution, but something that God has, in fact, given, however twisted it might be. And so I think on the religious side of things, I can at least make a stronger case not only for why we should be moral, namely that there is a God who, who knows all things and says this is a good way to live, but I can even explain why atheists are, in fact, moral, and that is they're created in God's image. I'll be right back. Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Great, Mark Roberts, author most recently, Can We Trust the Gospels? Their books are linked at HughHewitt.com. The conversation continues all day in the great God debate here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Great God Debate Day on the Hugh Hewitt Show. All the show given over to a conversation between Christopher Hitchens, best-selling author of God is Not Great, number one in the New York Times, bestseller list last week, How Religion Poisons Everything, and Dr. Mark Roberts, author uh, published this week of Can We Trust the Gospels, also pastor, uh, blogger extraordinaire. My first proposition, gentlemen, on what science and scientists tell us about God. That many fine scientists believe in God does not prove that God exists, and that many fine scientists do not believe in God does not prove that God does not exist. Two illustrations. Dr. Francis Cullen is the head of the Human Genome Project. He declared at the National Prayer Breakfast on the 1st of February of this year that, quote, I can't identify a single conflict between what I know as a rigorous scientist and what I know as a believer. 
And he condemned the increasingly shrill voices around us who argue that the scientific and spiritual worldviews are incompatible. I am here this morning to tell you that these are different ways of finding truth and are not only compatible, but they are wondrously complementary. There's also a new Walter Isaacson biography of Einstein, quotes many, many passages of the great uh, physicist, including one that reads, I'm not an atheist, said Einstein. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We are in a position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows something must have written those books. It does not know how. Christopher Hitchens, is my first proposition correct? I actually don't think it is. I think that science has provided us with explanations for things that religion used to think it did explain. I think that has to be simply conceded. Not just about the origin of the cosmos, but about the origin of species, including our own, and the the commonality, as shown by the Genome Project, between ourselves and other animals, and indeed other uh, vegetables. Um, But not other vegetables, I mean, plant life. Uh, Our DNA is is extraordinary in demonstrating that, and it, it simply abolishes the need to think about a prime mover. Mark Roberts. You can, if, oh. words, it's an optional belief. Dr. Collins is absolutely welcome to say he believes in God, and even uh, though he, he can't seem to argue that as well as he does uh, elsewhere, that he's a Christian. But it's, as I say in my book, it's an optional belief now. It's been optional ever since Laplace, when uh, demonstrating uh, the workings of the universe, um, was asked, well, there doesn't seem to be a God in this design of yours. He said, well, it, it actually operates perfectly well without that assumption. So right. you can make it if you want, but it's completely superfluous. The, the, uh, it, it can't be integral to it. It doesn't explain anything. Einstein did say he was not an atheist, but he went on to say that he had no belief whatever in a personal God. He was a, he was a Spinozist, um, which is a very, a very exact way of saying that you do not believe that God intervenes in human affairs. Yes, and, and that is quite... If you don't believe that God intervenes in human affairs, then I think you're not a Christian, because a theist may very well say, well, the, the order of the universe seems to imply some kind of authorship, but that's as far as one can go. Religion means you have to say you know what God wants and what is in his mind. For example, I don't know, understand why my, my partner in this discussion has such a modest job if he knows as much as to know that God gave me a conscience. I mean, if he has sources of information as extraordinary as that, he should be much better known than he is. I think that uh, Einstein goes on to say that um, he's almost a a Calvinist. He's a determinist. He quotes at length that way. Uh, Mark Roberts, my proposition was, though, that the number of scientists agreeing or disagreeing uh, on either side does not tell us anything, actually, given the multiplicity of views on this. Science has not proven or disproven God. Well, there'd be several points to make. One is that uh, though the majority of scientists uh, do not have religious faith, according actually a very fascinating recent study by a group of sociologists, about 40% of university scientists in this country have uh, some kind of religious faith. About 60% don't. About half of those are atheists, half of those are agnostic, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, Part of what the study found, though, is that the, the correlation is very strong not between what people believe as scientists but how they were raised. In other words, those who were raised in atheistic homes continue to be atheistic. Those who were raised in religious homes continue to be religious, and that seems better to explain the nature of their, their faith or non-faith. But I, I, would, I would go back to something, and actually it's quoted, uh, Christopher quotes it in his book by one of my professors at Harvard, Stephen Jay Gould, 
who spoke of religion and science in terms of non-overlapping magisteria. That is to say that, that uh, science offers explanations uh, of a certain sort. Religion offers explanations of a certain sort. I would agree with Christopher's uh, uh, assertion that when religion tries to make scientific explanation, it makes a mess of things. I would want to go further and say when science tries to go the other way, it makes a mess of things. Uh, and that what we have is different ways of explaining behavior, different ways of explaining reality. I would argue that both can have validity. For example, uh, consider my love for my children. Uh, I think it's real to talk about my feelings of love for my children. They are quite real. A, a materialist might say, no, that's simply a bio, biochemical or molecular event happening in your brain. Well, I happen to believe it is a biochemical molecular event happening in my brain, but I also believe that my, my love for my children has a reality that that kind of scientific approach can't get at. And so we need different ways to, uh, to deal with reality. Science is extraordinarily helpful, uh, but I think there's also a place for, for religion to fill in the blanks that science can never fill in. Christopher. Could I, could I just add one tiny thing? I've, yes. I've obviously wanted to go rush out and buy my book, but there is another book by Professor Victor Stenger, that's recently been published, called God, the Failed Hypothesis. <coughs> Excuse me. He's a much better scientist than I am. Um, probably not as good, though, as Professor Stephen Jay Gould, a celebrated atheist. I must say I very much envy you having had him as a professor. Here's an example of what I mean, then, since we've mentioned Einstein. What Einstein says is that the, the miraculous thing about the universe is that there aren't any miracles in it that the beautiful thing about science, and particularly about physics, is its extraordinary regularity, symmetry, beauty, predictability, and so on. So th that's the extraordinary thing, that, that, that miracles do not occur, because this natural order is never disturbed. Now there, it seems to me, is a pretty flat contradiction. Who really would be a Christian if it didn't claim, if Christianity didn't claim that miracles could be worked by faith? Now I am reading from Walter Isaacson's biography on page 384, Einstein said, try and penetrate with our limited means the secrets of nature, and you will find that behind all the discernible laws and connection, there remains something subtle and tangible and inexplicable. Veneration for this force beyond anything that we can comprehend is my religion. To that extent, in fact, I am religious. I, I think that contradicts, Christopher Hitchens, what you no. just said. No, it doesn't at all, because do the religious say that these things cannot be explained? They do not. They say there is a God, and we know what he wants. They make a claim they cannot conceivably sustain. And when challenged on it, they will say, well, you, you, of course you can't believe it if you don't have faith. This is irritating. <laughs> it's the exact negation of what Einstein just said. Well, I, I would have to agree with Christopher Hitchens that, that religious people can sometimes be irritating, uh, having dealt with many of them and being one myself. I, I think what I would want to say is, is that... Uh, we can look at, at the wonder of creation, or, or that's perhaps begging the question, of the universe as it is. And, and, uh, and we can get to the point of saying either that's all there is and it is wonderful, or we can get to the point of saying there must be something beyond this, some sort of God, can't be proved, but one can't say that it doesn't matter whether there is that God or not. Coming right back with Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts. On the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Great God Debate Day on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Dr. Mark Roberts, author most recently of Can We Trust the Gospels, New Testament scholar and uh, pastor, author, blogger. Christopher Hitchens on the other side, author of most recently God Is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Pretty famous atheist. Uh, this proposition, number two, goes to you first, Dr. Roberts. All religions have done cruel things at some times, and some religions have been all, well, cruel almost continuously. 
but neither fact proves that all religions are cruel or that some religions do not reject cruelty, at least in theory, all the time. True or false? True. <laughs> you want me to elaborate? Yep. Yeah. I, I, w one of the things that is certainly true, and I, Christopher Hitchens is, is an incredible collector of uh, things that religious people have done that are terrible. And I've got to say, having read his book now twice, carefully, that about half the time I'm reading it and I'm saying, wow, this is really bad, and I agree completely with his moral outrage. So I certainly believe that religions and religious people have done a lot of bad in the world. I don't think one can conclude from that. Uh, that, that therefore religion necessarily poisons everything or always poisons everything, that seems to me to be taking uh, many steps forward in the debate without uh, sufficient evidence. One would need to, uh, to, to make a much stronger case. So I think I'm very happy with the view that, that religion, especially when mixed in with other things, can, uh, can make matters much worse. And historically, religious people have done some terrible things in, in, the, uh, in the guise of religion. Christopher Hitchens. Well, no, I'm afraid I think that the crimes of religion are innate in it. Um, and the reason why I think it's wicked ab initio is this. First, as I have said, it, um, it depends upon the worship of an absolute and unchangeable power. It's implicitly totalitarian. Second, it degrades our, our human self-respect by saying that we wouldn't act morally if it were not for the fear of this celestial dictatorship. It degrades the idea that we could do the right thing for its own sake. And third... It seems to me absolutely invariably to be based on, on sexual repression and on a fear and disgust involving the sexual act, the most important thing that we do. Um, and the, the, the misery and the violence that comes from that seems to me ine inevitable. And to be laid not at the door of those who misuse religion, but at the door of those who interpret it correctly. Mark Roberts. Well, I, I, again, there's too much to address here, but let me kind of go for the middle of that, that that religion claims we wouldn't act morally without fear. Uh, this is one of the places where, as I, I've read your, your book, Christopher, I, I sometimes wonder if you and I live in alternative universes. I've been a Christian for 50 years. I've been a pastor for 20-plus years. I've preached, I've told my congregation many things that I think they are to do morally. Never once, never once have I played the fear card, not one time ever, nor the reward in heaven card. Uh, for me, the, the justifications for moral behavior have to do with the, the nature of God and God's love, God's uh, call to love, a response in gratitude to what God has done for us in Christ, and so forth and so on. I realize that you don't believe that those things happen to be true, but what is certainly true is that at least in, in the part of the religious world in which I live and where I'm a pastor, uh, I have never done that which you say all religions must do, so well, I'm now, mystified. Well, I mean, this... I get this at every stop. You know, I've been debating this up and down the country with <clears throat> men of faith and women, too, for some weeks. And I realized that I'd have to write a different book for each one of them because you cannot make the assumption that people actually do subscribe to what the, the scriptural texts actually say. But if you're telling me that Christianity does not say that there's a, a eternal punishment for sinners, then I'm very happy to find that you're not to that extent a believer. <laughs> I, I think, uh, actually, Christianity believes that there's eternal punishment for all people, but God is gracious, and therefore we, we don't have that problem. But the eternal punishment, then, isn't the motivation. We're all stuck. 
uh, that's part of where original sin, if if one believes in that, and that's a pretty slippery doctrine, comes in. Well, of course I don't believe in original sin. It's a preposterous idea, and a wicked one, too. Well, all I'm saying is that if we believe that, then that is it's completely irrelevant to our behavior, how we act, because we're all going to hell anyway. So, so well, the, the, actually... If you think that this is only a brief veil of tears and a preparation for a, a, a later life, what does it really matter what does happen here? Well, it, it matters if our being on earth is a part of God's work of restoring the brokenness of creation. And then what we do is extraordinarily important. Well, that's incredibly cruel. That's, as I open my book by saying, that's telling people they've been created sick and then ordering them to be well. And we'll come back to continue Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts. When we return to the great God debate on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. All day today, devoting the subject, the great God debate between Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, his most recent book, How Religion Poisons Everything, top of the bestseller list across the country. Dr. Mark Roberts, whose book is not yet at the top of the bestseller list, hadn't been released yet, but uh, Can We Trust the Gospels coming out this week. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, proposition number three, on page 114 of your book, you write, the existence of Jesus is highly questionable. Can you back that up? Sure. Please do. Well, there there doesn't exist a shard of convincing evidence that he ever did. The Gospels are written a great deal after the events they purport to describe. They contradict each other on every important aspect of the life story. I actually do think there must have been such a person. But it's only by a, uh, a process of induction that is um, not flattering to the myth. In other words, the fabrication of the, of the story of Bethlehem is designed to fulfill an ancient prophecy. And it, uh, because that's where it's supposed to happen and all this. So that an invention has to be made of a, of a tax by Caesar Augustus and a census and all of this. And that explains why the, the Holy Family is in that place instead. Well, if the thing had been invented out of whole cloth, then they would just have had him born there and have done with it. But the fact that all this uh, fabrication has to be made to make it come right suggests that there was someone born in that, uh, roughly that area at around that time who was a preacher of some sort. But there isn't a, there isn't a trustworthy word. I'm probably, I'm now trespassing on the territory of my partner here. There isn't a, a trustworthy word, as you know from reading uh, Barton Ehrman and others, in, in any of the Gospels that you could remotely say was historical evidence. Mark Roberts. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, I guess you and I are going to have to disagree on this one, too. But well, let me say a couple things. First is the, the Gospels in the New Testament are not the earliest witness to uh, the existence of Jesus. That would be in, in the letters of uh, Paul which are quite a bit earlier than the Gospels and independent from them. And those letters actually refer to earlier uh, oral traditions. So, in fact, we have uh, certainly evidence outside of the Gospel that's earlier. The other thing, at least... It's all hearsay, though. Well, (laughs) in that uh, it is spoken of... What do you mean by hearsay? Well, I mean, it's not... There's there's nothing attested by anyone you could reasonably describe as a reliable witness in anything you could reasonably describe as a reliable form. Well, I, I don't know except what you're... For the, except for the, the, the counterintuitive evidence that, that there's so much fabrication that it, it would seem needless if there hadn't been a real person to be telling these um, fibs about. 
You know, it's interesting. Your, your, your argument on, on Bethlehem is, is the kind of argument, actually, that I make in, in my book, in that when you really look at the evidence, it's obvious that it wasn't fabricated or they would have done a, a, so much of a better job. My point is simply that the Gospels are not the earliest witness. There also are, are some non-Christian witnesses from around the end of the first century, the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, Suetonius, in all likelihood, refers to Jesus, though calling him Crestus. So we have, uh, from a time not too far from the Gospels, uh, evidence of Jesus outside of Christianity. But the only the other point I would simply want to make, I think you said that the Gospels themselves contradict themselves on almost every point that matters or something. Did I get that right? Yes, yeah, sure. Well, uh, this is going to be a, a nice moment to promo my book, but I, I put in, uh, I think it's a list of 33 places in which the four Gospels uh, agree, and I would say that many of those things are in fact the main points and quite astounding. For example, the four Gospels agree that the earliest witnesses to the resurrection are women. They're doing this in a culture that doesn't accept the testimony of women in a law court. That that almost surely would never have been fabricated. It would have been ridiculous to do so. So the fact that all four Gospels agree on such a thing is, in fact, very important. The fact that the Gospels agree on the fact that Jesus recruited his disciples in a culture in which rabbis didn't recruit but had disciples come to them, etc., etc. I could go through the whole list. I well, won't do that. I, no, I, I, don't, I don't say it every point, but I mean, I'm, 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 annoyingly, I'm just for once in a hotel that doesn't have a Gideon Bible. But... It's I an atheist hotel. That's your this. problem. I just invite anyone listening to this to read uh, any. Well, actually, they better quickly read all four of, of the accounts of either the birth or the death, and see if they can make them agree. Mark Roberts. Well, isn't it? You know, the interesting thing is, if they all agreed, I, I think the critics of the New Testament would would say, "Aha, collusion." Uh, in fact, there was an effort in the second century uh, among Christians to try and get them to sort of be one coherent account. Interestingly enough, the early church rejected that in favor of what one would say it, w- it was before more independent witnesses, although a couple of the Gospels are probably relying on each other. Uh, folk who have worked this through, and, and I would be one of them, have found ways to see, yes, there are differences in the telling of the story, but to suggest that there's somehow wild contradictions makes me again wonder if you and I are living in parallel universes. Well, I mean, you, you force me to impress you. I mean, do you think that at the time of the crucifixion, the graves in the Great Jerusalem area opened and many of the dead came out and walked the streets? As, well, I, let me, That's one account. Yes. It's not it, sustained, but you, you do think that happened. It's in Matthew's Gospel. Yes. Uh, as a believer, I think it happens. If I put on my historian hat, I say... This is uh, one account, one gospel, one witness to this. This makes it, again, now speaking as a historian, historically unlikely. As a believer, I believe it. What I'm talking about... It's absolutely flabbergasting, because among other things, that surely degrades the idea of resurrection by making it commonplace. Uh, it degrades the idea of resurrection it, by making it... If it can happen, to, if just the graves live and anyone can get up and walk around, what's, what's so special about the proposed resurrection of the Nazarene. Well, you know, it's even worse than that, because Christian theology holds that every person will be resurrected, so we've thoroughly degraded it. Well, while, you're, while you are making things up, why not throw that in? 
Can I ask, though, was the accountant Matthew contradicted by the other gospels? There's no contradiction. All I'm saying is there's when there's one testimony to something that otherwise we would consider to be unlikely, if you simply look at that from a historical point of view, you'd say that that's unlikely. Now, I happen to believe that it happened, but I believe that it happened because as I have studied the gospel of Matthew, I find Matthew to be a a, a reliable historical witness to uh, what happened in that time. So on that ground, I'd argue for it. No one, whether Tacitus, nor Josephus, or any other seems to think there was an earthquake. We'll be right back, and we're going to talk Bart Ehrman with Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Great, Mark Roberts, Can We Trust the Gospels? Both books are linked at hughhewitt.com. I'll be right back on the Great God Debate on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour as we draw to conclusion, hour number one of the three-hour Great God Debate between Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Dr. Mark Roberts, author most recently of Can We Trust the Gospels. I turn to Bart Ehrman. He figures prominently in Christopher Hitchens' book. He figures prominently in Mark Roberts' book. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, what do you find so appealing about Bart Ehrman? Well, I find it's what Bertrand Russell used to call... um the argument of evidence against interest, or as my friend, you probably know him, John O'Sullivan, yes. uh, says, says if the Pope says he believes in God, he's only doing his job. If he says he doesn't believe in God, he may be onto something. Um, Bart Ehrman did the best a, a, a man could do to keep up his belief, and he appears to have been, I, I hope I, um, again, don't trespass in to my partner's field of expertise, but to be quite a renowned scholar of the Gospels in several languages. Um, in, the, in the believing Christian community. I'm, I'm right, am I not, in saying this? Mark Roberts. Hey, he is a, is a well-regarded scholar. And he came to the conclusion that it was mythical. Uh, uh, well, when he was, the, when he was a young man. stories, including some of the ones that I used to most enjoy uh, contemplating when I was uh, being taught the Bible at school, are inserted even later than one had, uh, so to say, feared. Mark Roberts. I, I think you're talking there about the uh, the story of the the woman caught in adultery yes. in John eight. Uh, I, yes, uh, he he points out that 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 particular story is not found in the earliest of the copies uh, the manuscripts of the Gospel of John that we have. The, the thing is that that has been well known for centuries to any and every scholar and most Christians because if you open up your Bible you'll find out that in most copies of the Bible, that story is in brackets anyway. That's old, old news. I, I don't know why in particular that's relevant. Oh, it isn't particularly relevant. It's just it, it was the one that struck me because it used to be one of my favorite stories, ah. that's all. Ah, well, the, we, but the, we, the, I mean, the, the totality of, of Dr. Ehrman's work, it's, the book is called Misquoting Jesus. Yes. Uh, your estimate of misquoting well, Jesus. I can't, I can't wait to read your reply to it because I, I've tried and failed. Well, I, I, someone who will take the book on from a Christian point of view. So perhaps I've now found one. Oh, you have. Well, <laughs> you may not be persuaded, but uh, in fact, the second chapter of my book uh, looks at the the textual and, and manuscript uh, background for the Gospels. And in that, I try to lay out m- much of what Ehrman does. And by the way, I need to say, much of his scholarship is quite fine, though he has been a person who has been opposing Christianity for 30 years. So I, I don't know that he's necessarily objective but in all things, nor am I. But he is a fine scholar. But uh, Excuse me? Huh? He's been an opponent of Christianity for 30 years? Yes. He, 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 he lost his He admits to have lo- losing his faith in graduate school. He's an atheist. And and he has been arguing as an atheist now for over 30 years and writing books opposing Orthodox Christian faith. 
my understanding was very different from that. I'm going to have to check. No, it's quite true. There's a, there's a place in which he himself talks about losing his faith and yet still celebrating Christmas rather sadly. I will be right back, America. Don't go anywhere. We'll take a, a short break for the news and the traffic, and then the Great God debate continues on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Morning, glory to me, Grace America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. Special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, the Great God Debate. Christopher Hitchens, a Vanity Fair columnist, fame, a dozen books and collections of essays, including Thomas Jefferson, author of America, and his most recent book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, at the top of every bestseller list in America, number one on the New York Times bestseller list last week, as a matter of fact. Uh, and Dr. Mark Roberts, no stranger to listeners of this show. Dr. Roberts, the author of six books, including the just-now-published Can We Trust the Gospels, blogger, author, pastor extraordinaire, Professor, as I said at the beginning of the show, Dr. Roberts had his undergraduate and his Ph.D. from Harvard. He's a New Testament scholar. Christopher Hitchens, of course, comes to us from Great Britain, where he gets his education Oxford. This hour, in the third hour of today's show, we're going to go back to the general question of religion and morality. This hour, though, I'm going into the tall grass of the New Testament, and I want to begin with some propositions that Christopher Hitchens puts into his book in the discussion of the New Testament, particularly that H.L. Mencken and Thomas Paine's view of the New Testament, quote, a helter-skelter accumulation of more or less discordant documents, some of them probably of respectable origin, but others palpably apocryphal, have been, and this is the key, borne out by later biblical scholarship, much of it first embarked upon to show that the texts are still relevant. Dr. Roberts, I'm going to start with you. Is uh, Mr. Hitchens correct that much of biblical scholarship has come to believe the New Testament to be uh, an accumulation of more or less discordant documents, many of them apocryphal? Uh, not most of New Testament scholarship, but a substantial segment of it, really the segment that I spent a lot of time in when I was in grad school at Harvard, has tended greatly to emphasize the uh, the, the discordant nature or the disagreements among uh, New Testament writers. There is a, a, a whole other sort of world of New Testament scholarship that has uh, continued to see that there's a qu quite a bit of commonality. I think the truth is that it's uh, quite a bit in the middle. There are a great diversity of perspective on Jesus and what he means. Uh, there's a difference of opinion on, on a number of, of issues within the New Testament, and yet the New Testament is quite uh, unified in its central message and understanding of who Jesus is and what God was doing in Jesus. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, when you write that the Gospels, quote, cannot agree on the mythical elements, they disagree wildly about the Sermon on the Mount, the anointing of Jesus, the treachery of Judas and Peter's haunting denial. Most astonishingly, they cannot converge on a common account of the crucifixion of the resurrection. Thus, the one interpretation that we simply have to d discard is the one that claims divine warrant for all of them. Are you considering that if an account is not replicated, it is thereby undermined, or are you just talking about direct conflicts between accounts? I suppose I'd rest my case on the, on the statement that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. If, we are, if we're going to be asked to believe that the laws of nature are suspended and that virgins give birth and that dead people walk again, we, we want to be sure that we're getting pretty impressive testimony, and this falls short of being testimony really at all. Mark Roberts. I don't understand that last comment. Why is it? Why is it not testimony? Well, it's hearsay. Well, it, it's hearsay from a, from a very backward, illiterate society. Well, the, the, and usually, 
uh, uh, passed on by people with a very strong interest in getting it believed. Uh, You've just made the the, the important point, and I I appreciate you're doing it. It was an illiterate society. It was an oral society. Uh, One of the things that uh, scholars have studied at great length in the last uh, 20 years, in fact, it's one of the live issues at academic meetings of uh, New Testament scholars, is the nature of oral communities. And what they discover is that uh, there is actually quite a bit of discipline and order within oral communities in terms of of hearing, remembering, and passing on information. And, and in fact, you might be interested in a, a book recently published by Richard Bauckham, who is a, uh, a professor at St. Andrews uh, in, in Scotland, uh, on the Gospels having been written by eyewitness and the eyewitness account. Uh, it, because they were an illiterate society, then it wasn't hearsay in the way ours is. These were people who were disciplined in remembering and accurately passing on stories if if and so the fact of it being that society is one of the things that makes it reasonable to trust that the oral traditions passed on in the context of this community are, are in fact believable. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, one of the arguments that Dr. Roberts makes in his book, and again you haven't had a chance to, to read it yet, uh, is that if we use one standard to assess historical documents and accounts of history, just one standard, that the Christian um, standard or the Christian evidences are far stronger than anything similar, whether Thucydides or Herodotus or Josephus or Tacitus, that the distance in time between the autograph and the manuscripts that reproduce it, much, much smaller, the number of copies much, much higher, and that any consistent approach to history would elevate the Christian account above almost any other account of any other ancient occurrence. Um, I don't know that I'm really qualified enough to pronounce on that. I mean, there is a big argument, for example, about whether Homer ever existed, or whether he was whether it's the work of many hands. There's no agreement, uh, really, about um, the authorship of the plays of Shakespeare. Though it seems fairly certain they are, are, are all written, were all written by one person. That's much closer to us. But I recall in the your book the likelihood that this that Shakespeare doesn't say you have to believe things that would otherwise be completely unbelievable on unsupported oral testimony. I say in my book, for example, it doesn't matter to me that we only have second-hand evidence for the existence of Socrates. We can't say for certain there was such a person. His teachings and his method remain with us, and we call them Socratic. That's, just, that's quite enough for me. But I'm not telling you or anyone else that if you don't agree with me about Socrates, you're going to go to hell. Or if you do, you're going to go to heaven and your sins will be forgiven you. But in your account of Socrates, it's which it's I found it's compelling... It's extraordinary claims are made that are not verifiable, but extraordinary demands are made in their name upon us. We're told that because of this, there are things we mustn't do and things we must. Well, Socrates would so make the demand upon... <laughs> it's, it's, these are only the micro parts of what's unbelievable. To me, the essentially unbelievable thing is this. What should we agree on for the lifespan of Homo sapiens now? We know, we know pretty much how long we've been on the planet. Uh, Dr. Roberts, what's your view of that? Uh, uh, will you say again? I, I missed... What's your view of how long Homo sapiens has been on the planet, our species? Oh, a long t- much longer than 6,000 years, let's yes. put it that way. I mean, I think it's, there isn't an absolute certainty, but let's, let's say, except for the absolute literalists who think that's the, the age of the Earth, um, well over 150,000 years, okay. in, in the course of which time, enormous numbers of people are born, don't live frightfully long, die, usually of their teeth, or for, by violence from others, or in childbirth, 
um, or of nameless diseases that they can't identify because they don't know about the germ theory of disease, and so on and so on. It goes on and on like that. And only uh, about 6,000 years ago does heaven decide to intervene in remote parts of the Middle East. Now, I find that unbelievable on its face. I don't just think it, it isn't true. I cannot see how anybody could believe that or wish it to be true. Dr. Roberts. You know, uh, let's. one of the things you, you quote Socrates in your book, and, and you like Socrates. I like Socrates, too. And one of the things you say of Socrates, all he really knew, he said, was the extent of his own ignorance. And then you add to me, this is still the definition of an educated person, which comes close to being a compliment to me, though you don't know me well. I, 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 I've often said, have been quoted in saying that I knew much more when I was 20 than when I'm 50, and by the time I'm 70, who knows what I will know. There, there is a great deal about what I believe to be God's work in the world that eclipses my understanding and sometimes, quite frankly, bugs me. And I, I will take that up with God uh, many of occasion in all kinds of ways. Uh, if I were God, do I think I would do things differently? Yes, I would. But I have uh, myself as, as a Christian come to the place of saying, I am not God. That's probably a good thing for the universe and where I find God's ways mystifying, I'm going to pursue what is true. I'm going to seek to know what is true. And at the same time, I'm going to be satisfied with my own ignorance. But I want to go back to that. Somehow we got away from the idea that the accounts of Socrates are much more thinly sourced than the accounts of Christ. But you are willing to go with the teachings of Socrates, even though they recommend some, frankly, uh, ill-advised decisions with regards to the city and the state and his own survival. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm, not a, I'm not an endorser of... I'm, I'm not... There's no such thing as a Socrates, but I admire his method of argument. Okay, but as, as to the, just the simple historical fact, when it comes to the source materials that Dr. Roberts claimed, antiquity, multiplicity, trustworthy scholarly methodology, and quantity and quality of textually ambiguous passages, the accounts of Christ stand up better than any other historical account, Christopher Hitchens. I don't know how you can argue with that. Well, I don't know how you can assert it, because they're, they're not comparing like with like. Well, what he was talking about there is the manuscript evidence for the Gospels, and and I think on that ground we're we're in pretty good shape. But something needs to be said, and, and I think I would agree with you. I, I wish there was better evidence for Christ. I, I do indeed. Uh, it would be convenient and helpful in a number of ways. Uh, if all we had to go on, uh, we who are Christian, was the gospel record. I think we could have confidence, but we would miss a lot. There is so much more for Christians that accounts for why we are Christian than, than that alone, and, and that needs to be thrown into the mix, I think. And we will. When we return, America, Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Dr. Mark Roberts, author of Can We Trust the Gospels? Both books are linked at HughHewitt.com. I recommend them both to you, and we'll come back. Right after this on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to Hugh Hewitt's show. The great God debate continues between Dr. Mark Roberts, author most recently of Can We Trust the Gospels, pastor, author, blogger, scholar, and friend of mine, and Christopher Hitchens, a magnificent author, essayist of Vanity Fair fame, and most recently, God is Not Great, New York Times bestseller. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, I was struck in your book. And by the way, I, I, I hope you realize. This is one of these interviews. I've heard you a few times. Both the guest and the host have actually read your book closely. This... No, well, that's incredibly decent of you. <laughs> so, twice. twice. Do Every much, word I do twice. Very much appreciate it. And I'm very sorry I can't return the compliment to Dr. Roberts, but I shall. Okay. Now, I was struck when out of the middle of, of nowhere come the Gnostic Gospels into your account because it seemed to me unnecessary to anything that you were trying to prove. Why did you 
Why did you bring up the, the Gnostic Gospels? What point do you think they play in your narrative of discrediting religion? Because I was going on, I was clearing the ground for what I wanted later to say about the Quran, about the way in which a text is given authority by uh, pruning the stuff, the, the garbage out of it, the discrepant bits, the um, contradictory bits, and so forth, making certain things canonical, discarding others. And, um, and because I was very fascinated by what I'd read about the, the Gospel of Judas. Uh, in the in the book you write, uh, for a long time there was incandescent debate over which of the Gospels should be regarded as divinely inspired. Some argued for these and some for others, and many a life was horribly lost on those propositions. Nobody dared say they were all man-abscribed. Long after the supposed drama was over and the revelation of St. John seemed to have been squeezed into the canon because of its author, rather ordinary name. Mark Roberts, you're a scholar of the Gnostic Gospels. And I did you find the account compelling or did it clear the way for the subsequent point made? Well, you know, it reminded me of things that one can read from certain scholars. It actually didn't remind me of what somebody who's actually studied the Gnostic Gospels would much think about them. For one thing, the Gnostic Gospels almost have nothing that has to do with the actual life of Jesus. They're filled with all kinds of theology, which, if you believe it, you would believe to be quite inspired, and if you don't, you'd believe it to be quite silly. But they have virtually nothing to say about the historical life of Jesus. And so in that regard, they're just not terribly helpful. Plus, they were written at least, or on average at any rate, a century later than the biblical Gospels. So the Gnostic Gospels don't really help us much at all if our desire is to know something of Jesus. They're fascinating in and of themselves. Uh, but more. The Gospel of Judas has a lot about Jesus in it. Well, but you actually read that, and I appreciate that. You gave almost a page to it. But what it tells us about Jesus is it has has absolutely nothing to do with what he did. It has some sayings of Jesus to uh, and in language that almost a hundred percent certain is nothing Jesus himself would have actually said because it sounds nothing like what a first century well, Jew would it, say. Surely it answers a question that is raised necessarily by the accepted account of the last uh, Passover, um, which is this. Why, why, is, why is Judas considered to be a bad person when he's, when he's only doing God's will? I, I agree with you there. It answers that because for the Gnostic, the, the physical body is, is bad and evil. And in the Gospel of Judas, Judas is the one who is, is going to get rid of the physical body of Jesus. And so for the Gnostics, Judas is the hero. He got rid of the body so that the real Christ, non-physical Christ, could sort of be set free. And, and that's why Judas is the hero. It, it does exonerate him. I, I'm not sure it does it in a way that has m much historical persuasiveness to it. Well, you, you certainly have me there. I don't think it's historical at all. Uh, so I, mean, I think it's, a, it's, another, it's another fabrication, but still, it, 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 it makes a mystery a little less mysterious. But was, was why it, is it? I mean, why do you think? I'll put, I'll put mm -hmm. the question to you this way. I know you're not a Catholic, but the, the, the Church of Rome waited until 1965, uh, 20 years after the end of the final solution in Europe, to acquit the Jewish people of the charge of deicide. Not some Jews, but all Jews. Why do you think it took him so long? Well, I think there I'd want to take a, a page out of your book and say that human beings are insufficiently rational. <laughs> but but it has been a dogma preached very fervently for a long, long time in the name of someone who claims you don't support his claim, I don't know on what basis you don't, to hold the keys of St. Peter, um, and who shares a lot of, of, your, of your beliefs. Uh, now, uh, I think I do know why, because 
we if if these events or some version of them did occur, the certainty is there were a lot of Jews around. And if they're told that they're absolved of responsibility, it becomes extremely difficult to say to the rest of the human race, you were responsible for Calvary as well. That's why they couldn't let them go. That's why this massive injustice was committed, not as an aberration of Christianity, but as part of its central teaching for the greater part of its existence and hasn't been sincerely, in my view, repudiated. Well, then, then, then that, that is lacking. I, I, all I can say is on this count, I, I am with you completely that the anti-Judaism of much of, of Christian history is extraordinarily inconsistent with what Christianity ought to be. And uh, you'll, you'll get no defense from me. I, I, you, you and I are of, of common mind in thinking that's terrible. I'd go the step further to say that it's also terrible history, because when you look carefully at the gospel records, you discover that the vast majority of the Jews were uh, in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' death were, were uh, abhorred by it. They, they, and they is, it inconsistent, by it. is it inconsistent, Roberts, uh, Dr. Roberts, with the teachings of Jesus and the explanation of those teachings of Paul? Oh, extraordinarily so. So it's one of the, I mean, there is definitely a problem, and I, I will agree that this is a problem for Christians, that so many Christians have both thought things we ought not to have thought and done things we ought not to have done. And, and, and obviously that's even more disturbing to me as a Christian because I, I have a certain uh, brotherhood and sisterhood with some of these folk. It, it, it's a terrible mark on our record. Well, I, it ought to be said, and I add it, that Maimonides, the great Jewish sage, thought it was one of the best day's work the Jewish people had ever done, that the, the elders did exactly the right thing by putting to death this ghastly heretic and imposter. Well, that but, didn't but, help much, but, did it? <laughs> uh, and, um, so, I mean, you know, I've, I've no sympathy with Judaism either. But it is said, is it not, that the Jews called for his blood to be on their heads and on their descendants to the remotest generation, an echo of the preamble to the Ten Commandments, where it is said that the sins of the fathers will be visited on their children. I do not regard this as moral preaching. Do you? Uh, is, it, is it right to say that the sins of the fathers shall be visited on their children and their children's children? Is, that, is, that, is it moral to say that, let alone truthful? Well, I, I think it's certainly truthful. Uh, whether it's moral depends on what sins and the way in which it's visited. I mean, I think it's certainly truthful that my, my children, uh, unfortunately, are, are going to carry on some of my own sins. Now, I don't think that's moral. I don't uh, break it. I think that there are situations in which no, it no, may well be moral. That, that's, not, that's not correct. They may go on sinning. They're doomed to, apparently. But are they going to suffer for yours? Well, I, I think and that is... children's children going to be held responsible for your sins? That's what it says. I think that is it is true that they will continue to suffer for my sin. I think the question of when it is moral for that to happen is not one that I could give a yes-no answer to. I'll be right back, Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts, and we continue on the Great God debate when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, 34 minutes after the hour, halfway through the Great God debate with Mark Roberts, Dr. Roberts, author most recently of Can We Trust the Gospel, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, author most recently of God is Not Great. I, I'm tempted to turn the page, but I don't want to because it's the, the hardest part of Christopher Hitchens' book, Dr. Mark Roberts, is when he goes to the Old Testament and he finds some awful things. Uh, the murder of innocents, the slaying of enemies, the destruction of children, everyone down to the last person in, in the city. And he presents this as an indictment of the Judeo-Christian ethic. Is he right to do so? Let me say that I also find that to be one of the hardest things about believing the Bible to be uh, God's Word. There are things in it that I find uh, uh, intuitively uh, uh, 
contrary to what seems to me to be right and wrong. And, and some of the things he mentions are things I myself struggle with. My response is twofold. First of all, I have been greatly helped by listening especially to uh, uh, Jewish writers and rabbis talk about some of that material because there's a lot of it that I don't get uh, as a Christian, and people who live within that tradition are able to make much more sense of it than I. That's number one. The second thing I need to say, though, is that all of that has to be seen in two contexts. Number one, in the context of the culture of that time in history. And many of the things that we see as quite perhaps bizarre uh, or, or, or irrational end up making a lot more sense when we understand the, that culture and the time. For me, the larger point is that what the Old Testament gives us is, is you might say, the beginning in the first chapters of the larger story of God's work with us, of God's uh, creation of the brokenness of the world, of God's effort to mend the world through a very unusual uh, uh, process, that is by entering into relationship with a people and using people to help fix the world. Now, there's a part of me that thinks uh, God wasn't... Uh, I, I wonder sometimes why God gave us the ability to mess it up in the first place. That seems uh, sometimes uh, peculiar. If I were God, I don't know that I would do that, but God, I assume, uh, knows what's best. But secondly, the idea that he's going to use people to uh, bring about the mending of it. And, and so it's the larger story of the Old Testament that is, is, is for me what's most important, in light of which then a lot of the things that seem uh, uh, curious, uh, uh, unexplainable, even offensive, it can make sense. Chris Richards, and one of the things that left me... Uh, uh, you're not going to go on and tell me that there is historical authority for the events described in the New Testament. The Old Testament. Uh, I, I think You're there is. You're surely not going to do that. Well, you did. You said there was a kingdom of David, and you said that there was uh, quite a lot of evidence for the later uh, Israeli or, or Jewish kingdom. This, yes, there is. But, uh, but not for Moses. A very much smaller kingdom than was thought. A very much more modestly sized, and, and no evidence whatever for the for the captivity and the exile. But that wandering. that was actually one of the parts I thought was a little thin for you, Christopher, because the, the Jewish archaeological experts that you refer to have not been given access to the same places where their studies have been able to produce the evidences no, but, of David. But they had the strongest motive in the places where they could dig for, for doing this, and the Sinai has been gone over with a, with a fine-tooth comb by now by a lot of other very highly qualified archaeologists, and there just is no evidence for it at all. And, and as those of us involved in the discussion of WMD are like to, to say, uh, the evidence... The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Ah, no, but with WMD, you can use the argument from design because you were dealing with a regime that had possessed and had used and had a record of concealment of WMD. So there's a very fair induction to be made in that case, please. So, Mark Roberts, so what, do you, what do you say to his response? Well, the further we go back into ancient please, history... I have, the, I have a question. Yes, sure. Sorry. Why, why does it matter to you to want to, to adopt the, these texts, these horrible texts as your own? Why, why did you just let it go? Why did you just say... It's a pity that St. Paul, in talking, I think, to the Galatians, says you know, we adopt all these books and these prophecies as our own because we think they were vindicated. Why? How does that make human life better? Well, it, how, does it, how does it help us to be ethical? Why, why, why impose this extraordinary strain on yourself? You're never <laughs> going to be able to prove it, and you should be relieved. Uh, uh, never be able to prove the the, the historicity. There's any authenticity, let alone any morality in these in these horrible old Jewish texts. Why bother? Why do? You, why why adopt them? Well, well, you could discard them. 
Well, I, I think it's a bit of an exaggeration to say there's no morality in them. But I would agree with your, your assertion. The further you go back in history, the harder and harder it is to come up with the kind of evidence you talk about. So, you know, you can find evidence of an ancient Jericho, and some scholars think they haven't got evidence that a wall fell over there. But that, that still is, is minimal compared to the kind of uh, confirmation that one could get from much more recent kinds of evidence. Why hang on to it is the question when we return. Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts, the guests of the Great God Debate on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Great God Debate Day, special broadcast of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Dr. Mark Roberts, author most recently of Can We Trust the Gospels. Both books are linked at HughHewitt.com. Uh, Dr. Roberts, as we went to break, Christopher Hitchens had said, why not just toss it off? You know, get rid of the the Old Testament or, or, or the Jewish scriptures, and, and you'll be much more. Jefferson could get along with Jesus. Why not just leave it at that? Well, I would agree it would make certain things easier. Interestingly, this was a great debate within second century Christianity because there was a man named Marcion who had been apparently an Orthodox Christian and then pretty much decided the Old Testament was uh, much as Christopher Hitchens believes it to be. And he just cut it off and he went into the New Testament and took out all the Old Testament references. And, and there was a major argument within the early church as to whether one needs, in fact, to hang on to the Old Testament or not. Uh, the reasons I would give intellectually are that the Old Testament are it's the soil out of the new te- out of which the New Testament was was grown, and you need the soil to go to grow the plant. Uh, the the personal side of that I think of a friend of mine named Gary who grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Uh, some years ago, Gary became a Christian. And as I uh, have been with him as his pastor, one of the things that astounded me almost initially was how much he, having his Jewish background, was able to get and to live the Christian life so much better than people who are Americans not coming out of a Jewish background. For example, uh, Americans who become Christians tend to be incredibly individualistic. Gary intuitively got the fact that uh, being a Christian is about being a member of a community. And so I would argue that sort of it, it, it's his closeness to the soil that, that enables him to be a better, a better believer. Chris Fitchens, uh, do you admire the work of Walker Percy? I'm, I've read a little, not a great deal. It didn't encourage me to go on um, to the end. I bring him up because he was asked once why he was a believer, and he said, I'll stop believing when someone can explain to me the Jews. And now there is a similar passage in your book mm-hmm. by a different person, and in fact, there is that extraordinary story of a people formed by that account, as as horrific as it is at some points, and as, uh, as you say, evidence-free in some others, but evidence-filled in others. Does it not strike you that that is an extraordinary story to have come to the full circle back in Jerusalem where they are were it not for the divine hand upon that people? Well, um, as someone who has some Jewish ancestry and a Jewish daughter, um, and who is indeed very impressed by the survival of the Jewish people and very committed to it, I can't agree with you, no, because if, if there's been a supervising hand, it's been an extremely brutal one. It's the reason I think why so many Jews, I think probably the majority now, are, are non-believers or secular in one form or another or atheist. And why the Jewish contribution to atheism has been so extraordinary, from Spinoza to Einstein. Mark Roberts, um, that, but, go ahead. I mean, if, I'll tell you something. I mean, the rabbi, after the, the end of the um, Second World War, the, the revelation of the final solution, the, the Shoah, the rabbis went rather quiet. They hadn't got anything much to say about how this had happened or, or whether God really had done it as a punishment for the exile. The rabbis who did think that would rather kept it to themselves. 
That's why the constitution of the state of Israel is as secular as it is. After the 1967 war, which is 40 years ago, as you know, this week, a number of rabbis did start to get up and say, aha, now we see the finger of God. The Holocaust was all meant so this could happen, so that we could establish rule over Arabs. Well, I can't imagine anything more evil being said or stupid, I have to say. Uh, well, I don't agree with it either. I don't, in fact, attribute to well, God the Holocaust. Don't say that God is behind all these things. No, I, I, why, why insult your deity? By making him responsible. I don't think he's responsible. I think there's free will in the universe, and that explains how come the Nazis, pagans that they were, went about their vicious ideology and wiped out six million people. And, but that's not my point. My point. The SS were confessing Catholics. I agree. I know that, and it's in your book. But paganism. Hitler was not a Christian. Hitler was not a believer in other than Hitler's he own. He never repudiated his his church. Hitler. And his he, church repudiated him. No, it did not. The Roman Church. Uh, issued instructions that his birthday was to be celebrated from the pulpit every year till the very end, uh, as you know. I, I will simply stand by the point that Hitler is not a Christian, and, and I don't believe you made that argument in your book. No, I don't say he was a Christian in my book. I say that he didn't repudiate it, and he certainly uh, took great care to get the support of the churches, but he wanted to replace everything with Aryan blood myths and the worship of himself. That is certainly true. But we've run into one of his oh, central points, Mark, well, which is... I, well, I want to make a relate. I just want to say that I think one of the great... Uh, ways in which now this Christopher you may not like this, but in which Christopher Hitchens is is a friend, uh, a kind of a friend to the church and to Christians, he forces us to deal with things that are hard things about faith. And as much as I'd rather not have to think about them, I am one that is in fact committed to finding the truth, to challenging the things I believe. And and I think one of the things Christians need to do is to wrestle much more. Uh, faithfully and honestly than we sometimes have with some of the sorry parts of our history and the challenging parts of our theology, because I believe that that kind of wrestling leads us more to the truth. Now, it may very well not lead us to the exact same truth that we began with, so be it. But I, I think that the, the questions that are being asked here and the challenge to Christians to think, to use our brains, to be rational, to examine uh, to, to be unafraid of difficult questions. I, I actually see that as a service, and in that sense, I, I, I appreciate the challenge, even though I come to places where I say, I'm not exactly sure how to meet it at this point. Well, there's a magician's trick in it, though. And, and the magician's trick is, for example, Christopher Hitchens, when you say, why would God allow Pius XI to die and Pius XII to replace him when the former is pro-Jew and, and, and anti-Hitler and the latter is pro-Hitler and anti-Jew? And... It, it, it's the magician's trick is that God's not involved in that as he is, as you want us, as you want your reader to believe Christians believe he is involved in that. And it's not a fair portrait of Pius twelve. No, it's no, it's not. It's not harsh enough. I agree. But it, it is. But you, you probably don't believe it. But it is believed no, by Catholics that, that, that God picks his vicar of Christ on earth. Yes. Yes, he does. And sometimes and it's, it, it is. Therefore, I, of course, I think it's a nonsensical belief, but. If, if it be true, then it, at the very eve of the Second World War, he decided to appoint a vicar of Christ who was pro-Hitler. That's a lot to swallow, isn't it? I, I don't hold God responsible for these things, bear, bear in mind. I'm not insulting him as you do. I'm not saying that he takes responsibility for these things. I don't think there's any such person. I, I free myself from this incredibly strenuous, impossible... But, but you, you can't free yourself from the break. We'll be right back. You saddle yourself. We'll be right back with the, the continuation. Mark Roberts, Christopher Hitchens on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 55 minutes after the hour, Dr. Mark Roberts, Christopher Hitchens, my guest, Mark Roberts. Before we go to the third hour, uh, one of the things I found uh, uh, inexplicable about uh, Christopher's book is that he wants 
readers who are not familiar with Christians to believe that everything is determinism and that God is, in fact, the puppet master running it. And free will is the part that I found so missing from this, your comment. Well, two things. One is, yes, that gets undersold. And so it's as if God is responsible for everything, and I don't know that that's fair to the Christian understanding of God. The second thing that I found missing in the book was an understanding that the world is not the way God meant it to be. I mean, if you go to that, to the, uh, you know, the, well, the, the argument from design and finding a watch on the beach, uh, the, the watch we find is a broken watch. It doesn't work right. It doesn't keep time the way it was meant to. And, and so much of what happens in this world, Christians believe in any way, is not what God intends, both because of human freedom and because the world itself is broken. Uh, we also believe that God is in the, the, uh, in the business of putting the world back together, and in fact that we're a part of that business, and that's part of why we're here on the world. But, but minus that freedom and minus the understanding of the brokenness of the world, God gets blamed for a lot of things like the so-called acts of God in, in my insurance uh, uh, contract that I'm not really sure are acts of God so much as acts of nature. And uh, Chris Frachin, I want to be fair to you. Uh, that is what you attribute to God as sort of the puppet no, no, master. No, no, actually, I, I'm sorry to have to say, and it's, it is, I, I will uh, say for the first and only time, I think you've completely misrepresented what I, what I write and, and also what I think. I say it's childish to, to blame God for things going wrong. It's idiotic. If there, is, if there was such a person, I'd have more respect for his majesty than to say uh, he owes me an explanation. You know, if, if there's a God, why have I got cancer? What a silly question. It would be. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have any idea why he why he would want that. Um, I would just have to accept it. But I mean, I don't. I do not uh, go in for this game at all. And I don't know why anybody does. I know you don't. But I but believe I mean, that I, the I picture. I have a bit astounded to find that we don't think that God uh, designed us and the universe after all, or that if he did, he did it with such tremendous, cruel ineptitude. I mean, again, I, it's not my problem. I don't think this way. As for free will, I think we have it, but I think we have no choice but to have it. What I was saying is not that you believe it, but that the portrait you put in of Christians is that they believe Christ is, in, or that God is, in fact, in charge well, of everything. Well, they invite this, they invite these, I mean, after all, didn't, did you not just say to me that if I contemplated the history of the Jews, I would have to see that, that God was planning everything for them? Well, I say, well, if you say that, then you've, you've, you've just accepted, on behalf of the deity, whose mind you appear to know how, you don't say, an enormous responsibility. No, you see in history an unfolding of a reconstruction effort that Mark uh, Roberts was referring to, not one driven forward in every detail, but one in which that mystery of free will is allowed to operate. But that's the big theology. We're coming back to hour number three. Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts, the great God debate. Don't go anywhere. So the bigger questions, and yes, there are still more when we return to the great God debate on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Time for a... Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. 
Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is andrewandtodd.com. They're with Sierra Pacific. They lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening. The Great God Debate continues its concluding hour. My guests, author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Christopher Hitchens of Vanity Fair fame. It's the best-selling book in America last week on the New York Times list. Also joined by Dr. Mark Roberts, theologian, pastor, friend of mine, blogger extraordinaire, author this week of Can We Trust the Gospels? His answer is yes. Both books are linked at HughHewitt.com. I want to get to one of the big questions. The impact of religion in the 20th century. Has it been a net positive or a net negative for human civilization, Christopher Hitchens? Uh, Why just this century? I'm sorry if I'm being dense. I'm just asking because now we know more, we understand more, we have the benefit of better theology, better learning and growth as human beings in the 20th century. How do we do as religious people versus non-religious? Well, when I think about the 20th century, I suppose I think um, of so many of its unanticipatable horrors. I mean, we behaved worse in the last century probably as a species than we ever had before. Um, and you know what examples I'm alluding to, I suppose. And the, the implication of, of um, religion in all of these was pretty, pretty gross. I'm thinking I have a long chapter in my book about the role of the, of the church, for example, in supporting the rise of fascism. Yes. Um, I don't think they're ever going to be able to... I frankly don't think Christianity is ever going to be able to live that down. But, of course, we do have the neo-pagan Nazis, we have the atheist Stalin, we have the atheist Mao, we have the atheist Cuba, we have the atheist North Korea. I have a long chapter on that objection, too. In fact, this ought to come up now, wouldn't it? I mean, secular criminality. Yes. Um, Well, I say in my book uh, that um, the the axis of fascism, almost entirely a Catholic movement, all the way from Spain to Croatia to uh, Slovakia, Concordat between the Vatican and Hitler that lasts till the very end and continues to shelter Nazi-wanted war criminals after it's over and help them to establish other dictatorships in South America. Um, The Japanese, led by someone who actually was a god, not just a godly person, but a god himself, according to those who believed in him, who no doubt thought he was the fount of all ethics in Japan and that there would be rape and pillage if people stopped believing in him. Um, Turning to, to Stalinism, look, in, in 1917 in Russia, when the regime falls, millions of Russians for hundreds of years have been told that the head of their government is a person just a little below God. He's the, the czar, the absolute ruler and owner of the country. He's also the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. That's, that's the inculcation of servility and credulity in the huge uneducated population. If you're Joseph Stalin, who studied as a seminary student, by the way, for most of his life, you shouldn't be in the dictatorship business if you can't exploit a reservoir of servility and credulity like that. And he, he replicates it perfectly. There are, there's an inquisition, 
There are show trials to expose heretics. There are miracles, Lysenko's biology. There's the constant worship of the leader. The, the, everything comes from the, from the top. Everyone has to say thank you all the time for the great benefits. Um, it's, it's, the, it's a replication of the same thing. And by the way, the Russian Orthodox Church continues to support him. Dr. Mark Roberts. Which it did. If you, want to, if you want to point out to me a society that went into famine and dictatorship and mass murder and war and torture as a result of adopting the principles of Lucretius and Spinoza and Einstein and Jefferson and Thomas Paine, then we'd have a level playing field. Dr. Roberts, did you find persuasive Mr. Hitchens' approach to the 20th century where, in fact, he redefined all of the atheist regimes into being neo-religious regimes? Well, I must admit that did feel like that was a bit of special pleading uh, because it, it, it seems to be evidence contrary to his main thesis that religion poisons everything. Something poisons everything. I think we could be uh, agreed in that. But to say that it's religion, I think, isn't getting the, the full nature of the poisoning, if you will. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, we can look for something else. And actually, I, I found within uh, God is Not Great a, a quote that I, I rather like, actually. It said, past and present religious atrocities have occurred not because we are evil, but because it is a fact of nature that the human species is biologically only partly rational. Now, I, I, to me, the partly rational doesn't quite get it, but I think Christopher Hitchens himself is moving toward an explanation that sees the problems in this world as not uh, necessarily stemming from religion. Religion, when it gets messed up with totalitarianism, when it gets messed up with partial rationality, uh, religion can be turned to, to bad uses, absolutely. Uh, uh, irreligious people, the same. Uh, there is, is plenty of sin to go around on all sides. And so then we begin to ask, what is the deeper problem with human nature, uh, and, and can we get at that somehow? And I think blaming religion, especially for Stalinism and Mao and stuff, seems to be twisting the definition of religion uh, out, of an, out of any kind of normal uh, definition, uh, dictionary mode. Christopher Hitchens, when you brought up the Rwandan horror and, frankly, educated me on the Catholic connection there, which I did not know and found horrifying, I thought it was not fair, though, to leave out John Paul II's efforts to bring down successfully, along with Thatcher and Reagan, the Soviet Union, that if you're going to indict religion, it, it may have poisoned many things, but it certainly didn't poison Poland. It freed Poland. Oh, well, I think, I think you'll find, I hope you'll find, I'm sure you'll find, that I do yes. I thought that John Paul II was an extraordinary human being. Yes, but... In, in, in that respect and in others, too, there, there, there are terrible things to be laid to his charge as well. By any standards, I mean, he, he was a, a great mammal. Um, this might be the time to reiterate my, my earlier challenge, before, because we still have some time left. I still want to be informed of a moral preachment or a moral action uh, made by a believer that couldn't be made by, uh, by an unbeliever. I'm not sure that I Because otherwise, know if your religion becomes optional, you can have a nice pope, you can have a nasty pope. Well, you, you can have an honest priest, you can have a dishonest priest. You have a fraudulent uh, church or a, or a frugal and a scrupulous one. But it, it's just, it could be just as well be a private belief. Now, that's unfortunately not really possible in religious terms, is it? Because you have to believe there is a supernatural power to which you owe some duty. Yeah. You make yourselves believe this. I still can't understand why you'd want to. <laughs> you, 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 well, you know, that I, I, let me say that there is, there is a struggle for believers who are open-minded and seek the truth, and I don't deny it. But let me try to answer your question with an action that I consider to be one of the most moral that I do as a human being, though you and I might disagree on that. Uh, and that is the action that I did it last night. I, when my son was going to bed, I got next to him and I prayed for him. 
I, I doubt an atheist could do that. To me, that is one of the most moral of things I do as a human being. Gosh. Well, I mean, I think it does as much good as aerobic dancing would do, frankly. I don't mean to be rude, but I don't see, well, I, I, I don't see that it's a moral action. Uh, you, you also seem to suggest that in some way, by not praying for my children, I'm not as moral as you are. Uh, hardly. Sure to say that. No, I know. Let me be clear. I did really not mean to, to my challenge, is it? Uh, uh, no, there are. You can do many other moral deeds. You might get with your children in the evening and and tell them how much you love them, and that would be absolutely fantastic. All I'm saying is that you asked for a moral action that I that I could do that an atheist could not do with integrity. And for me, uh, praying for my children before they go to bed is one of the most important things in my life, and I believe it to be highly moral. And I doubt that an atheist could do that in good conscience. So, I, don't, I don't say, but please don't misunderstand me, I wouldn't dream of saying that it was an immoral action. But I, I, I must tell you what I think, which is that, that it, is, it is an irrelevant one. I mean, it isn't of, of itself a good thing. And it isn't an action either. Well, that brings us to, to one of my, my propositions. Um, the vast majority of people listening disagree with you on that, Christopher. And... Atheists have always been with us. They always argue passionately. You better than most now with a fine book that is entertaining. But on the other hand, you know, Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life has sold 20 million copies. The church in China is exploding. Africa's alive with the evangelical fervor. The Catholic church in South America is thriving. And so by any objective measure... Islam is sweeping uh, all before it. Well. Atheists... It's a great time to be faith-based. But, but atheists have failed again with all of the arguments that you've always been able to marshal it just doesn't work. Why is that, do you suppose? Well, I say in the book that religious belief is ineradicable. It's, it's innate. In, it's not innate in all of us. There are, there are a certain number of people who always have been born and always will be, who now have to be taken seriously and can't be silenced and burned and, and imprisoned and tortured anymore, for whom it isn't possible to believe, of whom I'm, I am, as you can see, one. But in, it, it is still It's a belief I have to resist sometimes. Um... You know, if, if we were sitting together and a huge rusting fridge fell out of the sky and hit only you and left me alone, I would sort of think that was a bit of luck, um, though it would be a vile thing to think, wouldn't it? Yes. I couldn't stop myself. Um, and we're afraid of death, and we seek for patterns where none exist. Uh, one of the most awful things in the Bible I used to think when I was a child was seek and you shall find. Of course you will if you, if you seek. If you look for a pattern and you hope there's a God and you don't want to die and you hope an exception will be made in your own case, you're very likely to become vulnerable to religion. But, I mean, you have to allow me to be unimpressed. Uh, Mark Roberts, we got a minute to the break. Uh, Christopher, have you read N.T. Wright's book, Simply Christian? No, I've not. You know, uh, even before you read mine. Sounds I... like a very sickly title, Emma. <laughs> well... It's like okay. He, he, he's, I hate that sort of pseudo-modesty that Christians have. I appreciate that. You may not like the book, but it would be helpful in a couple of ways because I, I think it would help you to get what Christians believe to be the larger purpose and story, and it might also help to explain why there is this yearning in us for God because we happen to believe God put it there. We'll be right back. The Great God Debate continues. Mark Roberts and Christopher Hitchens when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Great God Debate Day. Dr. Mark Roberts, author of Can the Gospels Be Trusted? Many other books. And Christopher Hitchens, author of God is Not Grace, my guess. God is not great. Um, I want to uh, go now to the anthropic uh, principle because a number of people asked me to bring this up in the course preparing for this. Uh, Mark Daniels, 
wrote, it requires greater blind faith to believe that the universe has just happened into existence than to believe in an intelligent being created it. Um, I was written to about Robert Rood and James uh, Treffel, astronomers who believe that when you look at the 20 unique characteristics of the globe, that it could only have been fulfilled in, actually it should never have happened, even in the trillion universes and the 100 billion stars in each of them, so magnificent is the creation and so delicately balanced. And I go to the Bill Bryson book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, that when you're done reading Brief Cosmological History, Christopher Hitchens, it really does take an extraordinary amount of indifference to accident to come to the conclusion that we're just here because of an accident. Well, it, it doesn't involve believing just in an accident. I mean, there was, there was, there was an extraordinary event uh, that brought the universe into being, which the, the word Big Bang, originally invented by Professor Fred Hoyle, was originally designed to scorn that idea, to make it sound silly, but in fact it's now pretty much accepted. Um, I just have to refer you again, I think, to, to Victor Stenger's uh, book, which is, has a, a, a much closer engagement than mine does with, um, with the sciences. And, and it, it's, it seems to me, though, that the, the really unbelievable thing, the thing that cannot be believed, is that we on this very tiny speck of the planet in a solar system that has otherwise only dead planets, and the, the, the death of which we can anticipate almost to the hour, the heat death of our, our known universe. It's on the very, very edge of the whirling, unimaginable space of other, other galaxies. That, that we are the point of all this creation. It's just not possible for me at any rate to believe that. Mark Roberts, when uh, my correspondents point out that the Earth being fit for habitat requires the number of stars in the planetary system, the parent star birth date, the parent star age, the parent star distance, the parent star mass, surface gravity, axial tilt, all these different things. Does that increase or decrease your, your belief? Well, to the extent that I understand it, and I need to confess that I am quite limited in my understanding of that kind of science, uh, it, it, it certainly increases... Well, that makes two of us. Well, it, it increases my belief. And that's well, like, I've got it down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so at least somebody somebody here knows what it... You know, I, I would point to... You uh, can't uh, possibly say that you derive your faith from it, can you? Because Christianity no. comes from a time when people thought the sky was a bowl. No. no it, and, when, and they had no idea that the, we, that the Earth was round or revolved around the sun instead of the sun around it. Indeed... Christianity threatened with torture and death anyone who tried to investigate the uh, subjects you've just been presenting. Yes, and, and not one of the, the happy chapters in our history. I mean, I, let me point to another book that I've found to be quite helpful. It's by Owen Gingrich. Owen Gingrich is an astrophysicist at Harvard. He actually taught there when, when I was a student there, though I didn't take a class from him. We would eat lunch in the same place. Uh, he, he wrote a book called God's Universe. It's uh, Harvard University Press. It's a fairly small book talking about how he as an astrophysicist is also a man of faith, a, a Christian, and, and how that makes sense. And he says a couple things that you can find interesting. One is that when he looks at the, the utter unlikelihood of, of human existence, that that does increase his, his uh, faith that there is uh, some sort of a God behind all of this. But also, and this is what I think interesting in terms of uh, Christopher Hitchens' recent comment, he, he chides himself uh, from thinking that we're, we're the whole purpose, that as human beings are the whole purpose of it. He says as, as, as a, a, a Christian who needs to be humble before God and as a scientist, there may well be uh, uh, other life in other place. Uh, to me, it's, inst it's instructive because it... it uh, uh, it shows how a, a great man of science whose scientific understanding vastly, vastly exceeds my own uh, actually 
allows him to be uh, more convinced in, in his religious faith and less, and to do it in a very rational and sane and uh, open-to-science way uh, that, that I, I find very appealing. I think one of the things that I would want to say myself is that the extent to which, in the history of, of uh, the re- relationship between religion and science, Christianity has often uh, opposed scientific inquiry. Uh, much of that I, I find very grievous and would agree with Christopher Hitchens that that was a sorry thing. You see, if, suppose that you could infer a creator who was interested... Who, sorry, suppose you could infer a creator or an intelligence from these calculations, which is a hypothesis that so far when tested has proved to be inadequate. But suppose... Let, let, let me grant it to you. All your work is still ahead of you. You have... That doesn't... It, it suggests in the smallest degree that he's interested in what happens to you or me. I think that's correct. Then you would have to look for evidences of his plan revealed to humankind. Yes, I just think our cranial capacity isn't up to that. Yeah. No, I, I, I would agree with you on that. That, 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 that so gets us to a place. So why things you can't possibly know? That's what I, I keep asking you. I will keep asking you. Why do you impose this extraordinary burden on yourself? Because you found those evidences, I would say. Well, that, be, because, well, it, that well, gets... Well, you better, you should publicize them better. It, <laughs> they, they haven't penetrated yet. Yes. The, I would say that what you're saying is, why hang on to these things that are hard to believe and defend? And my answer is that I have to be uh, intellectually uh, honest and and try to be uh, faithful in, in as a thinker that I can't simply lop off of my faith uh, those things that I find inconvenient or, or, or difficult to understand. That it, it's a matter of, and you say, well, then why hold on to the faith in the first place? Because the faith in the first place, uh, to me, makes ultimately the most sense of all things, and because of something that I realized that you, you would have a hard time uh, agreeing with, but what I would also say is my experience of God. Uh, I realize you don't think I've had an experience of God, but I... And no, 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 I think you have. I, I, I wouldn't dream really? of doubting that you think you have. I, I, but I, I don't think you could make it real to anybody else. Well... <laughs> As, as, as a, well, I can say is as a pastor, I, I... I don't think the people who report seeing UFOs and so on are lying. I think they, did, I think they really do think they saw them. I just do not think we're being visited by such craft. My, my experience, and again, this is, gets to my, my particular experience as a pastor, is that it's not, it's not an easy thing at all to, to help somebody else to experience God as reality, but that if I am as faithful to the truth as I can be, if I seek to live it out as faithfully as I can, that actually uh, th- that can help people uh, come to experience God in a genuine way as well. If I didn't believe that, I sure as heck wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And Chris Richens, you believe people are deluding themselves when they believe they have experienced God. Well, actually, the, uh, I was a friend of a, a, a bishop uh, of the Church of England, um, a very decent and gentle man called uh, Hugh Montefiore, had converted from Judaism to become a Christian, became a very senior figure in the, in the Anglican Church because of a personal visit that he had from Jesus Christ when he was one of the few Jews at a, a Protestant boarding school. He wrote a book also saying that the conditions for life on this planet uh, seem to be so extraordinary, the, the knife-edge balance on which we live, that it testifies to, to the divine. And I, I, don't, I can't say that old, old Bishop Hugh was lying when he said he'd had a personal visit from Jesus. Like we, it, it did change his life. He acted for the rest of his life as if it had happened. On that point, will we return? Because that's very interesting. Is that in the book? Christopher, it's not in the book, is it? What? 
You didn't include that in the book, did you? No, I probably should have done it. Yes. It's a very interesting uh, book that he wrote, but he's worth Googling. We'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thanks for listening today. The Great God Debate has got three segments left. God is not great uh, by Christopher Hitchens. One point of view, how religion poisons everything. The other point of view represented by Dr. Mark Roberts, uh, markdroberts.com, his most recent book, Can the Gospels Be Trusted? I um, I now bring up a point sent to me by Randy Elrod, who blogs at Ethos. Um, he wanted this proposition to be put out there. An understanding of the existence of something greater than ourselves gives us the ability, as Dostoevsky states in The Brothers, to not only live, but to live for something definite. Without a firm notion of what he is living for, man will not accept life and will rather destroy himself rather than remain on earth. And, of course... He is one of the great Christian mystics, Christopher Hitchens, but do you believe that man absolutely must have some understanding of something larger than himself, meaning God, or that it becomes meaningless and insane? Well, I think we do probably need something on the order of the transcendent in our lives, and I think humanism fulfills these uh, these needs, incidentally. I mean, I think if you, if, if you say that for you, as for me, the beauties of science the consolations of philosophy, the study of literature as the source of um, ethical and moral uh, questions. Uh, it, it, that's enough for most people's lifetimes. And to turn away from this and say, well, I'd rather go for the, the ancient texts that come from the, the childhood of our species, is first, I think, to refuse a wonderful offer, and second, uh, it makes it impossibly arrogant for the questioner to assume that that will make you behave better. I mean, surely he knows that many people absolutely convinced that there's a God greater than themselves are convinced that that God is telling them to do evil. The, the example you just gave of people who have personal experiences that must be considered valid must be valid for everybody in that case. In that case, it is true that the Archangel Gabriel told the Prophet Muhammad what to do. It, was, it, was, it seems to have been very convincing to him and to many other people. Do you accept the, the validity of that or not? No, I don't. And that, Do you accept that Louis Farrakhan can get people off drugs by faith? No, I don't. And that's why impressed? Mark Roberts, this is his but biggest how challenge. Do you, how do you accept it for one and, re, and reject it for another? You have to, Mark Roberts, I'll leave that question to you, because it's a question of choosing between many competing claims as to divine guidance. Well, it, it, this is where it, it, Christopher Hitchens and I would, though I think, end up in quite different places, agree that one of the things we desperately need is uh, open-mindedness, uh, clear thinking, the ability to ask difficult questions, to uh, test our own hypotheses. He's, you got to study with Karl Popper, I, I understand, and that would be the thing I would envy of you, having uh, studied philosophy of science uh, in my undergraduate days, and Popper was rather a hero there. Uh, that that uh, we need to – I don't take at all every testimony at face value as true. I think we've got to examine it, uh, look to see if it's true, test it. I believe that in Well, in there's, no, there's no standard for doing that, though, is there? It's, it's, it's the most objective possible thing. Well, I, I have – Actually, you don't get terribly reassured, do you, if someone comes up to you in, in the street and says, I'm on a mission from God, and he's given me some instructions. That you, why does that not delight you if someone comes up and does that? Well, because I happen to believe that sometimes people are on a mission from God, and sometimes they think they are and they're not, and, and it's not necessarily a good yeah, thing. Well, I'd love to be with you the next time someone says that, that comes up to both of us and says they're hearing voices and it's God. You're going to throw your arms around him and say, you too, what luck. 
but generally, I, well, I, I, I actually I did a war. I don't think so, but I just don't. I actually spend quite a bit of time with people who who have uh, claims for uh, various kinds of religious experiences, and what I do is I listen to them. I, I try as best I can with the tools I have and the understanding I have to discern uh, the extent to which what they are saying is true and not. And you're right. You're, you're, you've said is is that a, a difficult thing to do? Is there some absolute standard? I don't believe there is, but I do believe. No, there isn't. You, you couldn't believe that there, would, there was. You couldn't. It wouldn't be a matter of belief, would it? It would have to have something to do with proof. Well, yeah. So, so Just a I, tiny little bit, a smidgen of evidence here and there wouldn't kill, would it? Uh, there isn't any. That's the thing. It's, well, it's just you can't. You don't judge people by what they think of themselves. You do you'd judge them how they. You do judge them by how they failing, live, though. You'd be failing them by not saying, "Look, I'm really sorry, man, but I think you're in trouble and you need help." Well, that that is actually. I've said that to different kind of people because, of course, schizophrenics also believe they have religious experiences when, in fact, they they need uh, de desperately need to help. We come back. Two segments left. The Great God Debate. Mark Roberts, Christopher Hitchens. When we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Forty-four minutes after the hour, America. Hugh Hewitt with Christopher Hitchens, author of "God Is Not Great: How Religion Poisons Everything." Mark Roberts, author of "Can We Trust the Gospels?" Mark Roberts, early in the show, you said that. Christopher Hitchens does not seem to inhabit the same universe you do when it comes to the religious people that you know. And the conversation we just had about people walking up and talking to it reminded me of that comment because that's not really how religious people live in my experience. It's not, and they're not poisoned. They're out doing good things and, and living extraordinarily humble but service-filled lives. And I think maybe that's where the disconnect comes between the portrait we get out of God is not great and your portrait. Well, I... I think as, if one looks at uh, the uh, the things that religious people have done throughout history and uh, even throughout the world today that are not good, one comes up with a certain view of what religion must be that's very different from the average experience. And here I can't speak for all religions. I can speak for what I know. I can speak for myself and my congregation of people whose faith in God is is a prime motivator uh, of goodness. I think of uh, recently some folk from our church uh, went down to a, a, an orphanage in Mexico, and uh, some of the folks fi fixed bicycles, and some of the folks worked on teeth because we have a couple dentists in the church. And they did that not just because they're good humanists. They did that because they're Christians, and they feel that that is what they're, they're to do for their faith uh, in, in their response to God. Now, as I look at that, it, it's very hard for me to see how that poisoned anything. It, it, it seems to me that that, that greatly enriched uh, something and and helped people's lives and so I, I guess I'm willing to say that sometimes religion poisons things. I, I'm looking for the side that says and sometimes it doesn't. Very well. Well, since you've been uh, kind enough to read my book, you I, I don't expect you to remember every bit of it. But you will grant me that I, I spent some time describing my encounters in uh, northern Uganda with people who are yes. there in a selfless way trying to repair the damage done by a, the horrible, Lord's Army. a horrible religious yep. Christian group called the Lord's Resistance Army. And I say, well, which of, you is, which of you is really the faithful one? I mean, to me it doesn't matter because there are very large numbers of people who do that kind of work all over the world, and I've met them and can introduce you to them, who do so for its own sake, for the sake of their fellow men, for their brothers and sisters. Um, they don't do, demand any divine warrant, and they're not suspected of proselytization. Christopher, qu question for you. Now, so any, uh, it's like my original challenge. You have to name an ethical action that uh, an atheist couldn't but, take. But, but I have a question for you. unbelievers who do charitable work, I don't say charity poisons everything, but you, in order to say that confronted with, say, AIDS in Africa, that that's bad, though 
P.S. It might be God's punishment. Now, a so question for you, though. At you... B, the age is bad, with condoms are worse and must be forbidden. For, for a really foolish, wicked thing like that, you need to be a person of faith. You have read uh, the gospel, so you know what Jesus teaches, and you then go to Uganda and you see what the Lord's army was taught, and you see what the people trying to repair the Lord's army is taught. Which group is acting in conformance with the actual teachings of Jesus as you read them? Well, I would say, I'd have to say both. How could the, the Lord's army be I'd acting? I'd have to say both. Well, the Lord's resistance army says that nothing, nothing will be okay in Uganda until everyone uh, uh, agrees with the Ten Commandments. Jesus does not teach that. Mark Roberts, does he? No, he, Jesus doesn't. No, That's what I asked. But Moses does. I was asking in the teachers... Moses as one of your... Uh, I, I was asking, as you assess the teachings of Jesus and those two camps in Uganda, one is teaching Christ's love and one is not. That's well, why I'm saying... Who comes to bring not peace but a sword? Well, Touche. But in its context, one has to understand what that means, and, and it, it's it's not quite fair to throw that. Who's the one who said uh, that that his followers are to be known by their love? And, and that's uh, the, the more consistent and, and more easily who needs understood. Divine permission for love. Excuse me. Excuse me. Who needs divine permission for love? I I don't know that any of us need permission, but it certainly helps. Or to be told to love. Doesn't it? Isn't it rather odd to be told to love? It seems it's always seemed bizarre to me. Well. You know, from my point of view, it's extraordinarily helpful because... Order to I, I, love. I don't... I don't it's something is uh, cranky there. Well, it, I, it, we need to understand... And order to love others as much as you love yourself and your loved ones. That's, by the way, making an impossible commandment of people. Well, it's making an Making a demand that can't be met. Therefore, you can always accuse people of falling short of it. You can always find them guilty. I could accuse you of recently listening to one of my sermons because I agree it's an impossible commandment. The good news for Christians is that God helps us, and that's what we believe, to, to live that which we on our own could not. So you think all this is directed at you? Excuse me? You think all this is directed at you? You think the universe is designed with you in mind? Uh, no, I think the universe it's is... incredibly. In the guise of modesty, that seems to me an extraordinarily arrogant statement. I, I, I don't know that I've ever thought that or believed it. Well, would you promise me to think about it at least once? <laughs> yes. I believe that the universe is, is designed with uh, much greater things than me in mind, and that God has uh, enlisted me to help in his work of uh, bringing the universe back into order. Uh, is, is that a... a God, I... well, I must, you have a very high opinion of yourself. Well, I... I, I, I think you're a pretty decent chap also. I, I, if, if, if in, if in, uh, I think that's very, very extreme. If 30, if 30 years ago uh, an American man was drafted into the Army, I don't know that that person would rightly think he had a high opinion of himself. Oh, so you're conscripted into this? <laughs> well, it's, it, we use called, but you, conscripted... I mean, I just never know which, with which uh, proposition I'm arguing. We, we're conscripted, if you wish. Called is usually what we prefer. Mm-hmm. Armored I, Christian soldiers. Well, that has a wonderful history. <laughs> We're rapidly coming to the conclusion of this. Mark Roberts, did you have any questions for Christopher Hitchens? Well, uh, only in that uh, uh, the hard parts of your book for me were the places where you, you rather ridicule people of faith. Now, sometimes you ridicule people of faith that I also agree with you are, are, are thinking uh, and doing things that are, are virtually worthy of ridicule. But it, it, I, I wondered why you do that when it seems like you're going to lose the opportunity to influence some of the very people you would want to influence? Ah, well, it's just the way I am. I mean, I'm a polemicist, in, if you like. And it, it, one has to get people's attention, first of all. Okay, well, that's, that's fair. I, 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 mean, I, I It may sound to you as it somewhat slightly sounds to me as a, a vulgar answer, but it is the truth. 
Well, I, that's... One can't write a book saying um, God is not that brilliant. <laughs> I guess you could. You know, no, I, I, I appreciate that, that. That is a good answer. The only thing I would say is that I, I think some of what is good in your book will get lost because it's hard to be told that I'm stupid. I'll be right back. The final segment on the God is not great debate or the great God debate on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Thank you uh, to Christopher Hitchens and Mark Roberts uh, for spending so much time with us today on the Great God Debate. Christopher Hitchens, any final uh, thought here? Well, yes, I, I might have had another one, but I can't le- let uh, uh, Dr. Roberts' last observation go um, uncommented upon. I, I most certainly do not say uh, that he's stupid. And I, I say in my book that many people of high intelligence and, and fervent conscience have been devout believers. I say that I think the belief is stupid and unfounded and false and potentially latently always wicked because it is both servile in one way and arrogant in another. And that's why I I dare say that it's ab initio um, a poison. But I I certainly do not uh, say of people who have faith that that they are dumb. Isaac Newton uh, was practically a spiritualist. Alfred Russell Wallace, who did a lot of Darwin's work for him, had weird supernatural beliefs as well. These things are compatible with, with high intelligence and, and great morality, but we would be better off if we left them behind. Mark Roberts, your concluding thought. Well, perhaps I took uh, too personally the line that says, religion spoke its last intelligible or noble or inspiring words a long time ago, given that uh, two days ago I stood up and spoke words that I'd hoped were intelligible, <laughs> noble, and inspiring. But, but let me say something. I think this is important to say, and I haven't said it. One of the great things I, I appreciate in, in, uh, in Christopher Hitchens is he is a man of high morals. And I think any Christian or other religious person who doubts or denies that misses the point. And I share with him much of his outrage at uh, evil in the world. I share, I, I admire his willingness to do things like provide a, a sanctuary for, for, for Simon Rushdie or, or to speak out against certain fa- features of Islam in a day when it is, it is uh, risky to do so. I, I share his outrage over many of the abuses, for example, the abuse of children within the church, and, and probably even feel it more deeply because I'm a part of at least that, that larger church. One of the things I appreciate about, about Christopher Hitchens in his writing is his moral stance. The, the thing that I believe is that if one has a faith basis for morality, uh, in fact, there is even greater warrant. One can make greater arguments for saying that others must must join in them. I, I realize that, that he disagrees with that. But I, I am grateful that he hasn't fallen into some swamp of relativism. And, in fact, there's a high moral calling that I think all people, religious, non-religious, ought to take seriously and be challenged by. And I, I need to say that I appreciate that in, in him and in his book. Christopher Hitchens, always a pleasure. We look forward to talking. Continued good luck in your book tour. And uh, Mark Roberts, thank you, sir. Continued good luck with the launch of Can the Gospels Be Trusted? I'll be back tomorrow, America, on the next edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. <laughs>